Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And I'm still at Comic-Con, so we're recording this early. (laughs) Uh, yeah. I'm having a wonderful time just geeking out tremendously. If you'd like to know how much, go ahead and listen to last week's comic episode, Homecoming. <laughs> yeah, a tip of the hat to Spidey. Well, one of the things I loved both about Homecoming but about Spider-Man in general is that he was always just such an enthusiastic scientist first and superhero second. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I think of us, Antosh. Uh, You know, minus the radioactive gifted powers. (laughs) I, yeah, um, I I do, I have worked um, very passingly with uh, radiation. Uh, No superpowers yet. (laughs) You would not like Dr. Santosh when he's angry. In, In honor of our comic book scientists... Let's do this week. We will be doing everybody's favorite bi-monthly journal club. Yay! Woo! This is our last journal club of the season, and next week's episode will be our finale before we take a break for the summer. And as such, this journal club's going to be a little bit of a grab bag. So things that didn't quite fit into some of our other themed ones. We have mentioned CART therapy or CARDI therapy, as you like to call it, Dr. Josh. Chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. We've, we've discussed this a few times before. 
but we want to bring up cart therapy this time because, guys, we are one step closer to FDA approval to actually use, just engage T-cell therapy for certain types of blood cancers in children. Am I correct in assuming that this also has a terrible name? Because as we have covered multiple times on this show, scientists are bad at naming things. Unfortunately, they just took the acronym Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-cell and they called it CART. They called it CAR-T, which is CARTY. It's cute. Like it's kind of like Bodie McBoatface for the boat, cancer McCancer or tumor McTumorface. That would be awesome. Cancer McTumorface. If, Tell us about Cardi Novartic Novartis Cardi Cancer McTumorface. Yeah, so Novartis is the drug company that's kind of spearheading the FDA approval process, but the understanding of how this works and the mechanics have been there's been so many contributions. Here's what you have to understand here, guys. When we used to combat lymphomas and leukemias in a very classical way by poisoning these cells, and unfortunately, when you give chemotherapy and you poison the cells, those poisons hit every single replicating cell in the body. Therefore, your blood cell counts would go down, you'd lose your hair because your follicles replicate very quickly, and you could have problems with your skin and your intestinal lining because those are also cells that replicate, you know, and you'd have other terrible consequences of this. This is the reverse. Instead of poisoning the cells, we are programming the host immune system in order to attack and rip apart those cancer cells. And the way you do that is you take a blood sample from the person who has cancer, you take out their healthy T cells, and then in a dish in the laboratory, you reprogram them to attack the tumor cells. And then when you reintroduce those programmed tumor cells, they are ready to attack. And this has helped greatly in reducing the amount of cancer uh, in, in a cancer patient without the need for a lot, a lot, a lot of chemotherapy. So, you know, it isn't as of yet a standalone treatment, but guys, we're totally getting to like a post-chemotherapy era. It's really exciting. And we should let our listeners know this isn't a slam dunk yet for, or sorry, this isn't completely approved by the FDA yet. What has happened is that the advisory panel, all the scientists and clinicians that have worked on CARDI for all this time, have given their thumbs up and a unanimous approval to send this therapy forward to the FDA for approval. So the FDA themselves haven't put their stamp on it, but basically everyone's saying, hey, you're clear to go. Um, so we have a lot of confidence that this is going to be a good therapy moving forward, at least for a few types of blood cancers. And there are several different companies working on variations of this CARDI treatment for all the different, at this time, mostly for just the blood cancers. So this is not all-purpose cancer treatment. It is right now really aimed at attacking blood cancers because you are harvesting white blood cells. If we can find other ways 
who do that, then the possibilities could be endless. The sheer number of possibilities, Santosh, I would have to say, goes right ahead and blows my mind. Okay, your mind is blown. You're in a state of dementia. So let's see if we can reverse the dementia by but wait. giving you an anti-epileptic But wait, drug. I hear me ask. Oh. What could an anti-epileptic drug possibly coming. do for somebody with <laughs> memory... Memory dis... What's what's the word I'm looking for? Not some not some Heimers, not most Heimers, but could actually treat all the Heimers, all the Zymers, all of them, <laughs> all Zymers. How how could a drug of any sort treat Alzheimer's? Is is this a cure? Oh, certainly not. This is not at all a cure. Um, we're talking about uh, a feasibility study that was done at Harvard Medical School in conjunction with uh, wonderful uh, researchers in Denmark. So the, the head researcher is a man named Daniel Press, who's at the Berenson Allen Center for Non-Invasive Brain Stimulation, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard. And what the researchers were hypothesizing was that since there are more Alzheimer's patients than the normal population that get seizures, they had examined the evidence to see if there was epileptic discharges, meaning there were tiny miniature subclinical seizures, which were responsible for some of, not all of, the problems in Alzheimer's. So basically what they were trying to determine was if this idea that sometimes when people with Alzheimer's forget, especially early on in their disease, what they're having is maybe like a little micro seizure or a mini seizure. And since Leviteracetam, which is uh, it's marketed as Keppra here in the United States, and since it's an anti-epileptic that we already use in patients who have seizures, and so we know it's safe to a particular dosage. Doctors here went ahead and gave Leviteracetam versus placebo. It's a double-blind study. They picked out people who had early signs of Alzheimer's, and then they gave them Leviteracetam or placebo, and they saw how they did on EEG, and they also looked at whether they had improvement of their cognitive ability as well. The answer, surprisingly, was that, yeah, you can actually have changes in, you know, like the EEG, which is the brainwave function, in people with Alzheimer's by giving them an anti-epileptic drug. Now, let me, let me break this down a little bit for you. A feasibility study is basically like, is this even worth testing further, right? We're not looking for a cure. We're looking at, imagine that your, your television remote no longer controls your TV. And you're like, well, is the remote sure. broken? Yeah. Is it out of batteries? Is the TV broken? Is this actually my cell phone and I am using the wrong device entirely? So... The, the feasibility study is we have a thought on what might be causing this, but we're not sure. Then they did the, the double-blind study, which does not mean that people were blindfolded, but simply yeah. that 
nobody knew who was getting what. Right. Everything is in sealed envelopes behind the scenes. Although I will mention that even though neither the patients nor the doctors <laughs> knew which injections patients were receiving, each patient eventually did get right. both a placebo and a low-dose or high-dose Keppra, uh, but in a random order. So everybody got a chance to receive this treatment to see if it would be of benefit, but in a different order so we would have a control group at all times. Yeah, so in some cases the patients kind of were their own control. And um, this is a great small study. It was only seven patients that were able to complete it. And Josh, uh, unfortunately, there wasn't any changes on their cognitive ability, like when they did little tests after taking the Keppra to see if they could think better. But it did improve some of their EEG findings. So when some of them had abnormalities in their EEG, the way that you would see in an epileptic patient, those abnormalities kind of smoothed out. So... We still don't know if we're going to see any improvement at all in how these early Alzheimer's patients think. And this is, you know, one of the very first epilepsy drugs to be tried in this way. The fact that it normalized brainwave patterns means that we're kind of onto something. Yeah, so now that we can see a change in lab values and the study is feasible, meaning there is some effect on the thing we thought there would be an effect on, now we can see we'll different doses. Yeah, and I should say like relative safety, like a little bit. You know, it, it almost yeah. makes me think that, you know, taking these old technologies and repurposing them in a new way. Right. And you know what? This is a terrible segue. I just want to talk about one of my favorite movies because I've been watching it recently. Are you familiar, Santosh, with the film Demolition Man? Am I familiar with Demolition Man? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Do you know how to use the three seashells? Nobody knows how to use the three seashells, okay? Oh, my friend, that is where you are wrong, and we could, deve we could devote an entire segment of Journal Club to it, but I will simply direct our listeners to go to Google or Reddit and simply search, how do I use the three seashells? It's out there, it's true, it's been confirmed, and it's also disgusting. You know what? I would much rather use Sylvester Stallone's method of cussing in front of one of the fine label makers until I had enough paper to wipe my ass. Well, for those of you who have not seen Demolition Man, let me let me educate you. First, you're missing out on a fantastic film from the late 80s, early 90s. Peak Stallone, peak Wesley Snipes, peak Sandra Bullock. This film involves a rough-and-tumble cop, so played by Sylvester Stallone, who has a tendency to leave a lot of damage in his wake while chasing after Wesley Snipes' villain, Simon Phoenix. And as punishment for, you know, accidentally blowing up a city block, as cops in the 90s were wont to do, <laughs> they decide to put him into cryostasis, or, you know, liquid nitrogen prison, and then he gets thawed out, you know, what, in 20... 20? Is that? Uh, I, it's coming up. The anniversary. Like, you know, we went by very recently. We passed by when Marty McFly was supposed to come visit us um, from Back to the Future. But we're coming up on the thawing uh, date for Sylvester Stallone's character in Demolition Man. 
And here's the problem with that. By and large, most of our attempts to thaw things out that have been frozen have gone less than stellar. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so we can we can do it in the you know we can do it really well in like a culture in a flask. We can revive tissues pretty well, but that usually involves storing them in some material that would be really toxic to like an entire organism. So the field of cryopreservation, long a staple of science fiction, is the ability to preserve tissues at liquid nitrogen temperatures for long periods of time and bring them back, and here's the key part, without damage. Right, and quickly. Quickly is the other one. Now, here's why this is so important, you know, Walt Disney's frozen head aside. <laughs> When somebody is willing to donate their organs, a lot of them still go unused because they can't be kept on ice more than four hours. So if somebody's willing to donate their heart and their liver or whatever organ, you have to have somebody who is ready, willing, and able to accept those organs no more than four hours away. And people just don't match up that quickly. It's very difficult, and that's why organs are such a big deal. So a better solution, if we could do it, would be to store the organs at temperatures around negative 80 to negative 190 degrees Celsius or 112 to 310 degrees negative Fahrenheit. And one of the methods that we have used is called vitrification, and that involves supercooling tissue samples. This is not whole organs. This is just tissue right. samples uh, to like a, a glassy state around negative 160 Celsius or 256 Fahrenheit. And they've already started right. using this, this technique on human brains. Yeah. That's right. There's a company called Alcor doing straight up mad science that is definitely not suspicious. <laughs> and um, let me be clear, by the way. So if I go into the lab, I've got a liquid nitrogen tank and I've got cells stored in there. I can have individual cells which get spun down into a tiny mm -hmm. little vial and then stored in liquid nitrogen. But the problem is, Josh, when I bring them out, they're, they're kind of individual cells when, the, when I'm thawing them. I get a lot of them die, and they don't maintain their original architecture. So they have to kind of float around until they meet each other again. And then I can get like a sheet of cells. But there's no way that like, you know, in an organized tissue like the brain, where the right neurons have to connect to the other right neurons in order to preserve the structure of the brain, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen when I thaw these cells out of liquid nitrogen. So the main problem that science fiction has actually done a pretty good job of addressing is that the even though we have the cooling part down liquid nitrogen we have pretty well figured out when you start the thawing process ice crystals form right. and damage tissue and potentially even crack it now thawing can work with very small tissue samples up to about a milliliter in volume but political divisions aside brains are not one milliliter uh, yep, yep. and neither are most other organs so as tissues get larger and approach the size of a liver or a lung or a heart, the leading technique that we currently use, slow warming over ice, doesn't work. But that could now be about to change with a team in where else? Minnesota. Announcing the development of a new technique that's allowed them to rapidly rewarm 
cryogenically treated human and pig samples, don't you know, without damaging the delicate frozen tissues. Oh, that's some science there, you betcha. <laughs> I mean, you have to wonder how far will you go. It'd be, have to be a pretty far goal. <laughs> oh, don't go. Hey, you're on some thin ice there, doctor. Careful there. But this is, this is the first time. So let's talk about what this Minnesota team has figured out to do about rewarming from freezing. Because if anyone would know how to unfreeze things, it absolutely would be a team in the Midwest. <laughs> uh, man, you know... Dr. Josh, you and I both lived in Chicago while going through medical school. Do you remember, uh, and, and I think they still do this, in the heart of winter, where they'll say, is, ladies and gentlemen of the Chicagoland area, this is how cold we are. By the way, Anchorage, Alaska is a balmy. <laughs> and inevitably it would be like 20 degrees warmer <laughs> in freaking Alaska. <laughs> yeah. We're very proud of our ability to deal with cold. So let's talk about what the team did. Instead of using convection or that slow warming over ice, the team used nanoparticles to heat tissues at the same rate all at once, which means ice crystals can't form because there's no temperature gradient, so the tissues do not get damaged. How do they do this? Well, they took silicon-coated iron particles into a solution and then generated uniform heat by applying a magnetic field. So once they had kind of created this new heat magnet, they then warmed up several large human and pig tissue samples between the one milliliter that we know we can do and 50 milliliters, which is now starting to approach, you know, almost the size of some very tiny graphs. And each time the tissues that were warmed up displayed no signs of harm unlike the control samples that were done in the vitrification method. After that, they simply washed the nanoparticles off the sample, and they even tested heating an 80 milliliter system, which showed that it achieved the same warming rates as in smaller sizes, which shows we can scale this up, potentially even to a Sylvester Stallone-sized body in the future. <laughs> I mean... Uh, to be fair, and I don't know how many people outside of Hollywood know this, but Stallone's not actually a huge guy. <laughs> not anymore. This has not worked yet on a whole organ, and in order to achieve it with a whole organ, you'd actually need to have the particles injected into you rather than just washing the tissue in them to achieve the same uniform heating. But it is definitely a step that they can do next. So this study was from Science and Translational Medicine, which is getting up there with becoming, I think, one of my favorite journals, along with the ever-popular Journal of Sexual Medicine. It's a great text, and it's because the pace of biomedical sciences is moving so fast that moving from that bench side, or I should say from the bench top to the bedside, that transitioning is happening faster and faster. So it is a very exciting journal. I love it. Now, in a perhaps a slightly less wise, but certainly no less exciting science fiction trope, uh, how do most apocalypses in the movies start, Santosh? <laughs> well, usually there's a nutty but well-meaning expert in something, and... The well-meaning expert says something like, 
Well, what if we were to just set off all the volcanoes on Earth at the same time? I wonder what that would look like. Decides to just go ahead and try it as a what-if scenario. (laughs) Or perhaps you decide to bring something back that died a long time ago, very often with good reason. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's another good, like, what-if scenario. Like, if you were to just, let's just revive this to see what it's like, because it might look cool. Yeah. You know, dinosaurs, super intelligent apes. There's there's a lot of great apocalypse scenarios out there. And in research that, once again, totally not suspicious and legitimately nothing to worry about, but we enjoy poking a little bit of fun, uh, scientists have managed to recreate an extinct virus. Because, you know, we don't have enough floating around out there. <laughs> Guys, before anybody freaks out... This is not a pathogenic virus to humans, um, like way not. And before animal lovers freak out, it is called a horsepox virus, and it is not infective towards modern horses at all. And before humans freak out, it was done in Canada, so it's definitely not being weaponized, and and we're we're fine. <laughs> in fact, this might be one of the most polite viruses of all time. Oh, just I'm I'm just trying to replicate here. I'm sorry, there, folks. Uh, I'll be on my way. You know. <laughs> if anything, here's the funny thing about this. Even though we're we're joking, part of the reason that the University of Alberta have managed to put together from scratch a relative of the smallpox virus is part of an effort to end a reign of terror. You know, certainly there are scientists who fear that. There are less ethical laboratories out there that could make, through synthetic biology, you know, weaponized or otherwise altered viruses. And so they wanted to see how easy is it to actually create a virus from scratch that has long been gone. And disappointingly, the answer is not as hard as you might expect. So they decided to pick one of the least threatening extinct viruses that they could in order to assess the overall threat from these kinds of attacks. See, I told you, it's Canadians, they're looking out for us. (laughs) They really are. And so here are some of the details that you guys may or may not want to know. Um, They cloned a vaccinia virus. So as Dr. Josh mentioned, it's a cousin, a long dead cousin of the smallpox virus and it's in the order vaccinia and what they did was they took this map the genome map which is 200,000 base pairs long and then they ordered they actually synthesized uh, blocks of DNA um, you know in like 10,000 to 30,000 base pair blocks and they just connected them end to end (laughs) and they recreated the entire genome Uh, which is all you need for a virus. You just need the genetic material, essentially. They tried to submit it for publication, but I think with very good intent, the lead author or the lead researcher um, didn't put as much detail as... (laughs) (laughs) He's like, guys, maybe we don't want an instruction manual on how to create extinct viruses floating around out there. Yeah. <laughs> For right exactly. So therefore the the journals who that he submitted to actually rejected the work and said we're not publishing this right now. So 
there's discussions between the University of Alberta, the professor who actually uh, created, you know, or headed up this project, Dr. Evans, and a pharmaceutical company called Tonics, which is the company that funded this research. And yeah, it is a little scary, Josh, because we're looking at like not a ton of effort microbiologically speaking, and just about $100,000 in funds. I mean, that's not expensive at all. That's pretty cheap. Back in 2011, there was a Dutch scientist, and that laboratory actually took the H5N1 bird flu virus, and they were able to manipulate it so that it infected ferrets. It moved from host to host, from a bird to a mammal, I mean, completely different host uh, with a little bit of genetic manipulation. So, yes, it is a scary thing, but it's also really good that people with good intentions who want to understand this process so that they can either make a virus to stop, you know, a bad virus by actually engineering a vaccine, or they can kind of reverse engineer it when a bad virus has been constructed and so they can destroy it quicker. If, if we know how to do this process, the theory is we know how to undo this process. So we're actually doing this for, you know, kind of know thine enemy more than anything else. Yeah, so, you know, sleep, sweet dreams, sleep well. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so that's something that we do now as humans. Would you, you know, I would have thought we would have brought dinosaurs back before old viruses, but hey, who am I to judge? <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, in the non-medical world, we are shooting for a woolly mammoth, and that is looking uh, very, very plausible. So that'd be cool, maybe, to have, like, woolly mammoths hanging out. I bet they'd be delicious. Uh, hey, aww. Like you wouldn't eat a, if we could just suddenly randomly clone them. You think people wouldn't just be eating them and doing all sorts of terrible things? No, let's let's be realistic here. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, Cecil went down, so <laughs> Ooh, oh, I'm gonna hate mail about that, aren't I? It it reminds me of, you know, because there's always the urban legends floating around about underground eating clubs where people are having, like, endangered animals or they'll dig up some fossil and a chef will be like, ah, I can, you know, unethically cook this into the finest prehistoric meal ever. And I, I enjoy I enjoy looking through a lot of these urban legends. And one of one of my favorites, I used to love the show Mythbusters. Yeah. And one of the ones I don't think they ever got to, sure, they didn't sure. do a lot with various human organs. They had their, they had Buster, oh, yeah, the dummy, absolutely. but Buster was, you know, gendered male. And one of the urban legends that I'm not sure if you've ever heard is some yeah. women choose to be artificially endowed yeah. with breast implants for a variety of reasons. And the question is... We always joke about, oh, well, somebody had new airbags put in or something equally immature and just as fun. Yeah, it's like, you know, oh, uh, who's our next patient? Uh, You know, 45-year-old female here with sepsis, status post airbag. So the question is, is how protective really are breast implants? And... Wait, wait, protect... I mean, Josh, protective... What are you, going around punching breast implants? No, no, no. Don't be ridiculous. Shooting them. Oh, what the fuck? What? <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus. 
Are you telling me you've never wondered if a breast implant could save you from a shot in the chest? Well, I'm wondering. Yeah, okay, I'm wondering now. You know what? I and uh, now I can't. I'm not going to be able to sleep now. <laughs> there, I'm sure there have been more than a few like either scientific or comedic tropes about objects blocking a bullet. I can't imagine that at least once or twice breast implants haven't been the subject of this, you know, like deflecting bullets, <laughs> kind of <laughs> like the Wonder Woman of, of uh, medical prosthetics. <laughs> <laughs> well, a new study published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, and this, this is a journal I am by and large unfamiliar with, but we'll be reading much more now. <laughs> Right. Carried out a series of ballistic tests to find out if a breast implant could really be a viable way to protect yourself from a speeding bullet. So researchers, and method methodology is important, Santosh. <laughs> no, no, I'm guessing this wasn't a theoretical exercise. No, because honestly, where's the uh... fun in theoretics when you can have everything ready to hand? <laughs> All right, lay it out. Lay out the setup. Researchers shot a saline breast implant with a handgun to see if it could alter the bullet's velocity or trajectory, reducing the chance of a fatal or severe injury. So they started from a distance of just 2.5 meters, so about 8 feet away from the handgun. Behind the fake breast, they put a block of ballistics gel, which you will have seen multiple times on Mythbusters or many cop shows, and it has a comparable consistency, you know, of human okay. muscle tissue. They also, for a control study, because this is good science, shot ballistics gel from the same distance without the breast implant okay. in front of it. <laughs> so, okay, I'm imagining, you guys remember The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne sitting there with his programmed rifle that shot at bricks so that he could reconstruct the bullet. So this was like that, but with breast implant. There... Highly detailed research concluded, and it's actually, it really is a fascinating study. I mean, we're being our usual immature selves about it, but I do encourage you to to take a, the long and short of it is that shots that passed through an implant actually had a 20% decreased penetration distance when compared to shots that did not pass through an implant. This is statistically significant. Now, group bullets... And, and clinically significant, too. I mean, we're talking about several centimeters. Yeah. Now, group bullets would still mushroom prior to the gel entry, but no bullet mushroomed within the gel. So bullets would pass through a saline breast implant, but it definitely reduces the velocity. And this is not this is the standard size implant. So regardless of what of what somebody's cup size may be. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming bigger is better, but okay. <laughs> well, no, because it's the thickness is different than the diameter. Uh, and and we'd have to get we'd have to get a plastic surgeon in to talk about it. But by and large, they're the same thickness through. So you know whether you go from A to Z or whatever cup size in between. The lead author, uh, Christopher Panucci, told New Scientist, "Yeah, so it turns out you can think of them as tiny airbags. 
that in the right circumstances <laughs> could protect the chest against a bullet wound as well as stabbings, a fall, or even a car accident. Please tell me you were able to access the full text of this particular thing and you actually saw the clinical presentation which was at the head of this article. <laughs> yes. May I please? Is that okay? Absolutely. This actually came from an actual patient presentation. 34-year-old woman with a history of subpectoral saline implants, okay? 350 milliliters. She sustained a gunshot wound where the range was 12 to 24 inches, single bullet. She was shot in the right chest, and the firearm was a Springfield XDM chambered in a 40 Smith & Western with a 4.5-inch barrel length. And this woman, okay, the CT of the chest demonstrated no penetrating injury to the thoracic cavity guys no penetrating injury to the thoracic chest cavity no rib fractures they were evaluated and cleared by trauma surgery team taken to the or by plastics not the trauma team josh and the deflated implant was lodged in the axillary wound as when protruding it was taken out they had a distinct injury to the prosthetic capsule but the rest of the injuries deep nothing nada this woman sustained a bullet wound right through the boob at almost point blank range at almost point blank range a foot away a foot to two feet away so we've got a real world example and we've got some really cool myth brustery science now i do have to add in the disclaimer we are neither encouraging you to shoot people in the breast at point blank range <laughs> nor to tempt fate by being shot at point-blank range. I have no doubt this still hurt, and it still led to injury, and there is no and there is no guarantee that they will use the same style of handgun. So it is simply, in terms of an academic and practical exercise, showing that there may be an additional protective effect for you ladies who have chosen, for whatever reason to otherwise enhance yourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're not judging. I think it's time that we that we wrap it up. Let's move on to our last story of the night. And it is one that is, you know, probably far more important, but in some ways equally ludicrous. And I know I know we pick a lot on IFLS, but I have to say they were the only ones who had first brought this to my attention and then linked to the proper study. So credit where credit is due. And the the headline is, Humans could be vaccinated against heroin after successful trials in monkeys. So let's talk about these monkey heroin addicts. And uh, so Santosh, how, how does this heroin vaccine work? Oh, sure. So... Essentially, what you want to do with any vaccine is you want to try to create an immune response, which is going to destroy the offending particle. Usually it's, you know, in, in my case, in infectious diseases, it's a virus or a bacteria. And you want the immune system to go on to the attack before the offending organism, or in this case, particle, has any chance to do any damage. So you... You do this in uh, a couple of steps. First of all, you take a part of the organism that is antigenic or, or that's the offender, okay? And then you increase how antigenic the particle is, meaning 
you make it more ugly. You, 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 you make it more offensive to the immune system by adding extra particles on. And these extra particles are called adjuvants. So if some of you guys are wondering, and you may have thought about it, you saw, you know, a vaccine handout or something like that, and you notice that there might be something like alum or aluminum in there. And the reason trace amounts of metals or something like that kind of get the immune system angry at whatever particle that they're attached to. So the one that we've known for a long time... Ah, immune system smash! Yeah, exactly. So the one that we've used this for a long time is tetanus toxoid. Tetanus toxoid is a fantastic adjuvant. Um, if you hook up tetanus toxoid to another molecule, the immune system hates both the tetanus toxoid and that other molecule. So, you know, you can do this with stuff that's not necessarily an infectious disease also, like a molecule of heroin. So you can take tetanus toxoid, in this case, is bigger than a heroin molecule. So you do the reverse. You attach many particles or many molecules of the opioid, in this case heroin, to a core of tetanus toxoid. And then you inject that whole concoction into your animal or your human. And the first time around, the immune system will start to generate immune memory and antibodies against the toxoid and against the heroin particle. And then the next time you give heroin by itself, those same antibodies will be around to bind up the heroin and neutralize it so it's basically inactive. And then the bound up complexes get degraded and destroyed. So this was given to a total of uh, four strung out monkeys who were injected with the vaccine first before being given doses of heroin. And they found that the monkeys who had been given at least three doses of the vaccine had a response that could neutralize the heroin that was most effective in the first month after vaccination, but could last for up to eight months. Yeah, and that that's wonderful. If you think of that in kind of human terms, and if a human is, is you know, trying to kick heroin, um, eight months, if we're talking, you know, close to three quarters of a year, that's a great amount of time to kind of kick the habit. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely going to be great. Now, this is specific to heroin, meaning it will not do anything for the large amounts of other prescription opioid abuse. But as heroin is kind of that, in some ways, the, the end-all or the major one that we have a huge problem with, being able to help provide an effective means to wean people off it, to treat them without getting them hooked on methadone or on opioids or just replacing one habit with another is something that is really admirable and hopefully providing long-term immunity to heroin will provide a great deal of help with recovery. Yeah, and we should note there's a lot of stuff that we have to figure out. This was a trial in mice and monkeys. We do have to eventually try this technique on humans and examine how it works, which is very, you can imagine, dangerous to do because after administering the vaccine, you have to test the response of the body to heroin, which, you know, it's it's a schedule one drug. <laughs> uh, how are they going to find people for that? Hey, uh, would you mind running down to the corner now that we've given you this vaccine and just, you know, picking up whatever your usual amount is and uh, letting us know if it still has an effect? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we need we need good quality for this study. <laughs> 
make sure you get it from Joey, too. I mean, Brian's stuff is shit. So, <laughs> no, the truth is, um, when you're when you're trying to work on a, a Schedule 1 drug like this one, it really does become very prohibitive. But I think it's a beautiful and a very novel approach to try to completely immunize a person so that they don't feel the effects of the drug at all versus everything else that we've been trying to do, which is like the slow weaning process, which really doesn't seem to work too well. So we've now managed to, re- to bring back lost viruses while giving ourselves immunity to drugs. This study does give me one, one warm, fuzzy feeling, and it's a little bit petty, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because I produced the show and I have that power. We now have a method which, although it still needs to be scaled up, we have a vaccine for heroin and opioid addiction. Your move, anti-vaxxers. Mic drop! Let's see you argue against that one. No, no, I want people to be addicted to heroin. Oh, please don't. For the love of God, don't. Well, did you know that heroin was actually originally invented to help people who were worried about the addictive properties of morphine? And that heroin is a trade name by the Bayer Company. (laughs) Yeah, the aspirin people, right? (laughs) So morphine used to be, of course, the drug of choice for... Everything from, you know, child teething to particularly nasty cough. And people knew that it worked. It did suppress the cough, but it would also give you a crippling morphine addiction. So Bayer came along and said, well, we think we've come up with a method that does not have the addictive properties. And they were horribly wrong, but they didn't want to call it non-addictive morphine because that's not catchy. So they tested a number of marketing names, and the one that stuck was heroin, because it made you feel like you were putting the hero into yourself. Fun etymology. I haven't been able to... Oh, hero-in. Beautiful. (laughs) That's a pretty good one. I like that. And we should say, by the way, we're not hating on the bear company. They were only doing what they thought was right at the time there was actually no malicious intent we sadly ended up with this compound we should do more to study it rather than just vilifying the users and i do hope that we like from a policy standpoint have the opportunity to study this better without having to you know send uh, users around the corner to get their best junk from in the uh, in the alley (laughs) so that wraps it up for this week's journal club but next week will be our final episode of the season before we take a break for the summer we'll be back in october you know we always like to have a little bit of fun with our last episode so regardless of what we choose to make it about we're going to end not with a rap battle not with a bunch of slang but this time with a show off or a showdown of puns Guys and gals at home, I am opening this up to you. Go to our Facebook page. Go to our Twitter. Tell us what you would like our pun showdown to be about. And we'll see you all next week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, And we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me, 
Yeah. <laughs> the help. <laughs> with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.